Chapter One, Part One of the Rainbow. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Rainbow, by D. H. Lawrence. Chapter One, How Tom Brangwen Married a Polish Lady. The Brangwens had lived for generations on the Marsh Farm in the meadows where the air-wash twisted sluggishly through alder trees, separating Derbyshire from Nottinghamshire. Two miles away a church tower stood on a hill, the houses of the little country town climbing assiduously up to it. Whenever one of the Brangwens in the fields lifted his head from his work, he saw the church tower at Ilkeston in the empty sky, so that as he turned again to the horizontal land he was aware of something standing above him and beyond him, in the distance. There was a look in the eyes of the Brangwens, as if they were expecting something unknown, about which they were eager. They had that air of readiness for what would come to them, a kind of surety and expectancy, the look of an inheritor. They were fresh, blond, slow-speaking people, revealing themselves plainly but slowly, so that one could watch the change in their eyes from laughter to anger, blue lit-up laughter to a hard blue-staring anger, through all the irresolute stages of the sky when the weather is changing. Living on rich land, on their own land, near to a growing town, they had forgotten what it was to be in straitened circumstances. They had never become rich, because they were always children, and the patrimony was divided every time but always, at the marsh, there was ample. So the Brangwens came and went without fear of necessity, working hard because of the life that was in them, not for want of the money. Neither were they thriftless. They were aware of the last halfpenny, and instinct made them not waste the peeling of their apple, for it would help to feed the cattle. But heaven and earth was teeming around them, and how should this cease? They felt the rush of the sap in spring, they knew the wave which cannot halt, but every year throws forward the seed to begetting, and, falling back, leaves the young-born on the earth. They knew the intercourse between heaven and earth, sunshine drawn into the breast and bowels, the rain sucked up in the daytime, nakedness that comes under the wind in autumn, showing the birds' nests no longer worth hiding. Their life and interrelations were such, feeling the pulse and body of the soil that opened to their furrow for the grain, and became smooth and supple after their ploughing, and clung to their feet with a weight that pulled like desire, lying hard and unresponsive when the crops were to be shorn away. The young corn waved and was silken, and the lustre slid along the limbs of the men who saw it. They took the udder of the cows, the cows yielded milk and pulse against the hands of the men. The pulse of the blood of the teats of the cows beat into the pulse of the hands of the men. They mounted their horses, and held life between the grip of their knees. They harnessed their horses at the wagon, and, with hand on the bridle rings, drew the heaving of the horses after their will. In autumn the partridges whirred up, birds in flocks blew like spray across the fallow. Rooks appeared on the grey, watery heavens, and flew cawing into the winter. Then the men sat by the fire in the house where the women moved about with surety, and the limbs and the body of the men were impregnated with the day, 
cattle and earth and vegetation and the sky. The men sat by the fire and their brains were inert as their blood flowed heavy with the accumulation from the living day. The women were different. On them too was the drowse of blood intimacy, calves sucking and hens running together in droves, and young geese palpitating in the hand while the food was pushed down their throttle. But the women looked out from the heated, blind intercourse of farm life to the spoken world beyond. They were aware of the lips and the mind of the world speaking and giving utterance, they heard the sound in the distance, and they strained to listen. It was enough for the men that the earth heaved and opened its furrow to them, that the wind blew to dry the wet wheat, and set the young ears of corn wheeling freshly round about. It was enough that they helped the cow in labour, or ferreted the rats from under the barn, or broke the back of a rabbit with a sharp knock of the hand. So much warmth and generating and pain and death did they know in their blood, earth and sky and beast and green plants, so much exchange and interchange they had with these, that they lived full and surcharged, their senses full-fed, their faces always turned to the heat of the blood, staring into the sun, dazed with looking towards the source of generation, unable to turn round. But the woman wanted another form of life than this, something that was not blood intimacy. Her house faced out from the farm buildings and fields, looked out to the road and the village with church and hall and the world beyond. She stood to see the far-off world of cities and governments and the active scope of man, the magic land to her where secrets were made known and desires fulfilled. She faced outwards to where men moved dominant and creative, having turned their back on the pulsing heat of creation, and with this behind them were set out to discover what was beyond, to enlarge their own scope and range and freedom. Whereas the Brangwen men faced inwards to the teeming life of creation which poured unresolved into their veins. Looking out, as she must, from the front of her house towards the activity of man in the world at large, whilst her husband looked out to the back at sky and harvest and beast and land, she strained her eyes to see what man had done in fighting outwards to knowledge. She strained to hear how he uttered himself in his conquest, her deepest desire hung on the battle that she heard, far off, being waged on the edge of the unknown. She also wanted to know, and to be of the fighting host. At home, even so near as Cossethay, was the vicar who spoke the other magic language, and had the other finer bearing, both of which she could perceive but could never attain to. The vicar moved in worlds beyond where her own menfolk existed. Did she not know her own menfolk? Fresh, slow, full-built men, masterful enough, but easy, native to the earth, lacking outwardness and range of motion. Whereas the vicar, dark and dry and small beside her husband, had yet a quickness and a range of being that made Brangwen, in his large geniality, seem dull and local. She knew her husband, but in the vicar's nature was that which passed beyond her knowledge. As Brangwen had power over the cattle, so the vicar had power over her husband. What was it in the vicar that raised him above the common men, as man is raised above the beast? She craved to know. She craved to achieve this higher being, if not in herself, then in her children. 
that which makes a man strong even if he be little and frail in body just as any man is little and frail beside a bull and yet stronger than the bull what was it it was not money nor power nor position what power had the vicar over tom brangwen none yet strip them and set them on a desert island and the vicar was the master his soul was master of the other man's and why why she decided it was a question of knowledge the curate was poor enough and not very efficacious as a man either yet he took rank with those others the superior she watched his children being born she saw them running as tiny things beside their mother and already they were separate from her own children distinct why were her own children marked below the others why should the curate's children inevitably take precedence over her children why should dominance be given them from the start it was not money nor even class it was education and experience she decided it was this this education this higher form of being that the mother wished to give to her children so that they too could live the supreme life on earth for her children at least the children of her heart had the complete nature that should take place in equality with the living vital people in the land not be left behind obscure among the labourers why must they remain obscured and stifled all their lives why should they suffer from lack of freedom to move how should they learn the entry into the finer more vivid circle of life her imagination was fired by the squire's lady at shelley hall who came to church at Cossethay with her little children girls in tidy capes of beaver fur and smart little hats herself like a winter rose so fair and delicate so fair so fine in mould so luminous what was it that mrs hardy felt which she mrs brangwen did not feel how was mrs hardy's nature different from that of the common women of Cossethay in what it was beyond them all the women of Cossethay talked eagerly about mrs hardy of her husband her children her guests her dress of her servants and her housekeeping the lady of the hall was the living dream of their lives her life was the epic that inspired their lives in her they lived imaginatively and in gossiping of her husband who drank of her scandalous brother of lord william bentley her friend member of parliament for the division they had their own odyssey enacting itself penelope and ulysses before them and circe and the swine and the endless web so the women of the village were fortunate they saw themselves in the lady of the manor each of them lived her own fulfilment of the life of mrs hardy and the brangwen wife of the marsh aspired beyond herself towards the further life of the finer woman towards the extended being she revealed as a traveller in his self-contained manner reveals far-off countries present in himself but why should a knowledge of far-off countries make a man's life a different thing finer bigger and why is a man more than the beast and the cattle that serve him it is the same thing the male part of the poem was filled in by such men as the vicar and lord william lean eager men with strange movements men who had command of the further fields whose lives ranged over a great extent ah it was something very desirable to know this touch of the wonderful men who had the power of thought and comprehension the women of the village might be much fonder of tom brangwen and more at their ease with him yet if their lives had been robbed of the vicar and of lord william 
the leading shoot would have been cut away from them. They would have been heavy and uninspired and inclined to hate. So long as the wonder of the beyond was before them, they could get along, whatever their lot. And Mrs. Hardy, and the vicar, and Lord William, these moved in the wonder of the beyond, and were visible to the eyes of Cossetay in their motion. 2. About 1840 a canal was constructed across the meadows of the Marsh Farm, connecting the newly opened collieries of the Erwash Valley. A high embankment travelled along the fields to carry the canal, which passed close to the homestead, and, reaching the road, went over in a heavy bridge. So the marsh was shut off from Ilkeston, and enclosed in the small valley-bed which ended in a bushy hill and the village spire of Cossethay. The Brangwens received a fair sum of money from this trespass across their land. Then, a short time afterwards, a colliery was sunk on the other side of the canal, and in a while the Midland Railway came down the valley at the foot of the Ilkeston Hill, and the invasion was complete. The town grew rapidly. The Brangwens were kept busy producing supplies. They became richer. They were almost tradesmen. Still the marsh remained remote and original, on the old quiet side of the canal embankment, in the sunny valley, where slow water wound along in company of stiff alders, and the road went under ash-trees, past the Brangwen's garden gate. But, looking from the garden gate down the road to the right, there, through the dark archway of the canal's square aqueduct, was a colliery spinning away in the near distance, and further, red crude houses plastered on the valley in masses, and beyond all, the dim smoking hill of the town. The homestead was just on the safe side of civilization, outside the gate. The house stood bare from the road, approached by a straight garden path, along which at spring the daffodils were thick in green and yellow. At the sides of the house were bushes of lilac and gelder rose and privet, entirely hiding the farm buildings behind. At the back a confusion of sheds spread into the home close, from out of two or three indistinct yards. The duck-pond lay beyond the furthest wall, littering its white feathers on the padded earthen banks, blowing its stray soiled feathers into the grass and the gorse-bushes below the canal embankment, which rose like a high rampart, near at hand, so that occasionally a man's figure passed in silhouette, or a man and a towing horse traversed the sky. At first the Brangwens were astonished by all this commotion around them. The building of a canal across their land made them strangers in their own place. This raw bank of earth shutting them off disconcerted them. As they worked in the fields, from beyond the now familiar embankment came the rhythmic run of the winding engines, startling at first, but afterwards a narcotic to the brain. Then the shrill whistle of the trains re-echoed through the heart, with fearsome pleasure, announcing the far-off come near and imminent. As they drove home from town, the farmers of the land met the blackened colliers trooping from the pit-mouth. As they gathered the harvest, the west wind brought a faint, sulphurous smell of pit-refuse burning. As they pulled the turnips in November, the sharp clink, 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 clink of empty trucks shunting on the line, vibrated in their hearts with the fact of other activity going on beyond them. The Alfred Brangwen of this period had married a woman from Hena, a daughter of the Black Horse. She was a slim, pretty, dark woman, quaint in her speech, whimsical, so that the sharp things she said did not hurt. She was oddly a thing to herself, 
rather querulous in her manner, but intrinsically separate and indifferent, so that her long lamentable complaints, when she raised her voice against her husband in particular, and against everybody else after him, only made those who heard her wonder and feel affectionately towards her, even while they were irritated and impatient with her. She railed long and loud about her husband, but always with a balanced, easy-flying voice and a quaint manner of speech that warmed his belly with pride and male triumph, while he scowled with mortification at the things she said. Consequently Brangwen himself had a humorous puckering at the eyes, a sort of fat laugh, very quiet and full, and he was spoilt like a lord of creation. He calmly did as he liked, laughed at their railing, excused himself in a teasing tone that she loved, followed his natural inclinations, and sometimes pricked too near the quick, frightened and broke her by a deep, tense fury, which seemed to fix on him and hold him for days, and which she would give anything to placate in him. They were two very separate beings, vitally connected, knowing nothing of each other, yet living in their separate ways from one root. There were four sons and two daughters. The eldest boy ran away early to sea and did not come back. After this the mother was more the node and centre of attraction in the home. The second boy, Alfred, whom the mother admired most, was the most reserved. He was sent to school in Ilkeston, and made some progress. But in spite of his dogged, yearning effort, he could not get beyond the rudiments of anything, save of drawing. At this, in which he had some power, he worked as if it were his hope. After much grumbling and savage rebellion against everything, after much trying and shifting about, when his father was incensed against him, and his mother almost despairing, he became a draughtsman in a lace factory in Nottingham. He remained heavy and somewhat uncouth, speaking with a broad Derbyshire accent, adhering with all his tenacity to his work and to his town position, making good designs, and becoming fairly well off. But at drawing his hands swung naturally in big, bold lines, rather lax, so that it was cruel for him to pedgill away at the lace designing, working from the tiny squares of his paper, counting and plotting and niggling. He did it stubbornly, with anguish, crushing the bowels within him, adhering to his chosen lot whatever it should cost, and he came back into life set and rigid, a rare-spoken, almost surly man. He married the daughter of a chemist, who affected some social superiority, and he became something of a snob, in his dogged fashion, with a passion for outward refinement in the household, mad when anything clumsy or gross occurred. Later, when his three children were growing up, and he seemed a staid, almost middle-aged man, he turned after strange women, and became a silent, inscrutable follower of forbidden pleasure, neglecting his indignant bourgeois wife without a qualm. Frank, the third son, refused from the first to have anything to do with learning. From the first he hung round the slaughter-house, which stood away in the third yard at the back of the farm. The Brangwens had always killed their own meat, and supplied the neighbourhood. Out of this grew a regular butcher's business in connection with the farm. As a child, Frank had been drawn by the trickle of dark blood that ran across the pavement from the slaughter-house to the crew-yard, by the sight of the man carrying across to the meat-shed a huge side of beef, with the kidneys showing, embedded in their heavy laps of fat. He was a handsome lad with soft brown hair and regular features, something like a later Roman youth. He was more easily excitable, more readily carried away than the rest, weaker in character. 
At eighteen he married a little factory girl, a pale, plump, quiet thing with sly eyes and a wheedling voice, who insinuated herself into him and bore him a child every year and made a fool of him. When he had taken over the butchery business, already a growing callousness to it and a sort of contempt made him neglectful of it. He drank, and was often to be found in his public house blathering away as if he knew everything, when in reality he was a noisy fool. Of the daughters, Alice the elder married a collier and lived for a time stormily in Ilkeston, before moving away to Yorkshire with her numerous young family. Effie, the younger, remained at home. The last child, Tom, was considerably younger than his brothers, so had belonged rather to the company of his sisters. He was his mother's favourite. She roused herself to determination, and sent him forcibly away to a grammar school in Derby when he was twelve years old. He did not want to go, and his father would have given way, but Mrs. Brangwen had set her heart on it. Her slender, pretty, tightly covered body, with full skirts, was now the centre of resolution in the house, and when she had once set upon anything, which was not often, the family failed before her. So Tom went to school, an unwilling failure from the first. He believed his mother was right in decreeing school for him, but he knew she was only right because she would not acknowledge his constitution. He knew, with a child's deep, instinctive foreknowledge of what is going to happen to him, that he would cut a sorry figure at school. But he took the infliction as inevitable, as if he were guilty of his own nature, as if his being were wrong, and his mother's conception right. If he could have what he liked, he would have been that which his mother fondly but deludedly hoped he was. He would have been clever, and capable of becoming a gentleman. It was her aspiration for him, therefore he knew it as the true aspiration for any boy. But you can't make a silk purse out of a sow's ear, as he told his mother very early, with regard to himself, much to her mortification and chagrin. When he got to school, he made a violent struggle against his physical inability to study. He sat gripped, making himself pale and ghastly in his effort to concentrate on the book, to take in what he had to learn, but it was no good. If he beat down his first repulsion, and got like a suicide to the stuff, he went very little further. He could not learn deliberately. His mind simply did not work. In feeling he was developed, sensitive to the atmosphere around him, brutal perhaps, but at the same time delicate, very delicate. So he had a low opinion of himself. He knew his own limitation. He knew that his brain was a slow, hopeless, good-for-nothing. So he was humble. But at the same time his feelings were more discriminating than those of most of the boys, and he was confused. He was more sensuously developed, more refined in instinct than they. For their mechanical stupidity he hated them, and suffered cruel contempt for them. But when it came to mental things, then he was at a disadvantage. He was at their mercy. He was a fool. He had not the power to controvert even the most stupid argument, so that he was forced to admit things he did not in the least believe, and, having admitted them, he did not know whether he believed them or not. He rather thought he did. But he loved anyone who could convey enlightenment to him through feeling. He sat betrayed with emotion when the teacher of literature read, in a moving fashion, Tennyson's Ulysses or Shelley's Ode to the West Wind. His lips parted, his eyes filled with a strained, almost suffering light, and the teacher read on, fired by his power over the boy. Tom Brangwen was moved by this experience beyond all calculation. He almost dreaded it, it was so deep. 
but when, almost secretly and shamefully, he came to take the book himself, and began the words, O wild west wind, thou breath of autumn's being, the very fact of the print caused a prickly sensation of repulsion to go over his skin. The blood came to his face, his heart filled with a bursting passion of rage and incompetence. He threw the book down and walked over it and went out to the cricket field. And he hated books as if they were his enemies. He hated them worse than ever he hated any person. He could not voluntarily control his attention. His mind had no fixed habits to go by. He had nothing to get hold of, nowhere to start from. For him there was nothing palpable, nothing known in himself, that he could apply to learning. He did not know how to begin. Therefore he was helpless when it came to deliberate understanding or deliberate learning. He had an instinct for mathematics, but if this failed him he was helpless as an idiot. So that he felt that the ground was never sure under his feet, he was nowhere. His final downfall was his complete inability to attend to a question put without suggestion. If he had to write a formal composition on the army, he did at least learn to repeat the few facts he knew. You can join the army at eighteen, you have to be over five foot eight. But he had all the time a living conviction that this was a dodge, and that his commonplaces were beneath contempt. Then he reddened furiously, felt his bowels sink with shame, scratched out what he had written, made an agonised effort to think of something in the real composition style, failed, became sullen with rage and humiliation, put the pen down, and would have been torn to pieces rather than attempt to write another word. He soon got used to the grammar school, and the grammar school got used to him, setting him down as a hopeless duffer at learning, but respecting him for a generous, honest nature. Only one narrow, domineering fellow, the Latin master, bullied him, and made the blue eyes mad with shame and rage. There was a horrid scene, when the boy laid open the master's head with a slate, and then things went on as before. The teacher got little sympathy, but Brangwen winced and could not bear to think of the deed, not even long after, when he was a grown man. He was glad to leave school. It had not been unpleasant. He had enjoyed the companionship of the other youths, or had thought he enjoyed it. The time had passed very quickly, in endless activity. But he knew all the time that he was in an ignominious position, in this place of learning. He was aware of failure all the while, of incapacity. But he was too healthy and sanguine to be wretched. He was too much alive. Yet his soul was wretched almost to hopelessness. He had loved one warm, clever boy who was frail in body, a consumptive type. The two had had an almost classic friendship, David and Jonathan, wherein Brangwen was the Jonathan, the server. But he had never felt equal with his friend, because the other's mind outpaced his, and left him ashamed, far in the rear. So the two boys went at once apart on leaving school. But Brangwen always remembered his friend that had been, kept him as a sort of light, a fine experience to remember. Tom Brangwen was glad to get back to the farm, where he was in his own again. I have got a turnip on my shoulders. Let me stick to Thallow, he said to his exasperated mother. He had too low an opinion of himself, but he went about at his work on the farm gladly enough, glad of the active labour and the smell of the land again, having youth and vigour and humour, and a comic wit, having the will and the power to forget his own shortcomings, finding himself violent with occasional rages, 
but usually on good terms with everybody and everything. When he was seventeen, his father fell from a stack and broke his neck. Then the mother and son and daughter lived on at the farm, interrupted by occasional loud-mouthed lamenting, jealous-spirited visitations from the butcher Frank, who had a grievance against the world, which he felt was always giving him less than his dues. Frank was particularly against the young Tom, whom he called a mardy baby, and Tom returned the hatred violently, his face growing red and his blue eyes staring. Effie sided with Tom against Frank, but when Alfred came from Nottingham, heavy-jowled and lowering, speaking very little, but treating those at home with some contempt, Effie and the mother sided with him and put Tom into the shade. It irritated the youth that his elder brother should be made something of a hero by the women, just because he didn't live at home and was a lace designer and almost a gentleman. But Alfred was something of a Prometheus bound, so the women loved him. Tom came later to understand his brother better. As youngest son, Tom felt some importance when the care of the farm devolved onto him. He was only eighteen, but he was quite capable of doing everything his father had done. And, of course, his mother remained as centre to the house. The young man grew up, very fresh and alert, with zest for every moment of life. He worked and rode and drove to market. He went out with companions, and got tipsy occasionally, and played skittles, and went to the little travelling theatres. Once, when he was drunk at a public house, he went upstairs with a prostitute, who seduced him. He was then nineteen. The thing was something of a shock to him. In the close intimacy of the farm kitchen, the woman occupied the supreme position. The men deferred to her in the house, on all household points, on all points of morality and behaviour. The woman was the symbol for that further life which comprised religion and love and morality. The men placed in her hands their own conscience. They said to her, Be my conscience-keeper, be the angel at the doorway guarding my outgoing and my incoming. And the woman fulfilled her trust. The men rested implicitly in her, receiving her praise or her blame with pleasure or with anger, rebelling and storming, but never for a moment really escaping in their own souls from her prerogative. They depended on her for their stability. Without her they would have felt like straws in the wind, to be blown hither and thither at random. She was the anchor and the security. She was the restraining hand of God, at times highly to be execrated. Now when Tom Brangwen, at nineteen, a youth fresh like a plant, rooted in his mother and his sister, found that he had lain with a prostitute woman in a common public house, he was very much startled. For him there was until that time only one kind of woman, his mother and sister. But now? He did not know what to feel. There was a slight wonder, a pang of anger, of disappointment, a first taste of ash and of cold fear, lest this was all that would happen, lest his relations with woman were going to be no more than this nothingness. There was a slight sense of shame before the prostitute, fear that she would despise him for his inefficiency. There was a cold distaste for her, and a fear of her, there was a moment of paralysed horror when he felt he might have taken a disease from her, and upon all this started tumult of emotion was laid the steadying hand of common sense, which said it did not matter very much, so long as he had no disease. He soon recovered balance, and really it did not matter so very much. But it had shocked him 
and put a mistrust into his heart, and emphasised his fear of what was within himself. He was, however, in a few days going about again in his own careless, happy-go-lucky fashion, his blue eyes just as clear and honest as ever, his face just as fresh, his appetite just as keen. Or apparently so. He had, in fact, lost some of his buoyant confidence, and doubt hindered his outgoing. For some time after this he was quieter, more conscious when he drank, more backward from companionship. The disillusion of this first carnal contact with woman, strengthened by his innate desire to find in a woman the embodiment of all his inarticulate, powerful religious impulses, put a bit in his mouth. He had something to lose which he was afraid of losing, which he was not even sure of possessing. This first affair did not matter much, but the business of love was, at the bottom of his soul, the most serious and terrifying of all to him. He was tormented now with sex-desire, his imagination reverted always to lustful scenes, but what really prevented his returning to a loose woman, over and above the natural squeamishness, was the recollection of the paucity of the last experience. It had been so nothing, so dribbling and functional, that he was ashamed to expose himself to the risk of a repetition of it. He made a strong, instinctive fight to retain his native cheerfulness unimpaired, he had naturally a plentiful stream of life and humour, a sense of sufficiency and exuberance, giving ease. But now it tended to cause tension. A strained light came into his eyes. He had a slight knitting of the brows. His boisterous humour gave place to lowering silences, and days passed by in a sort of suspense. He did not know there was any difference in him, exactly. For the most part he was filled with slow anger and resentment but he knew he was always thinking of women, or a woman, day in, day out, and that infuriated him. He could not get free, and he was ashamed. He had one or two sweethearts, starting with them in the hope of speedy development, but when he had a nice girl, he found that he was incapable of pushing the desired development. The very presence of the girl beside him made it impossible. He could not think of her like that. He could not think of her actual nakedness. She was a girl, and he liked her, and dreaded violently even the thought of uncovering her. He knew that, in the last issues of nakedness, he did not exist to her, nor she to him. Again, if he had a loose girl, and things began to develop, she offended him so deeply all the time that he never knew whether he was going to get away from her as quickly as possible, or whether he were going to take her out of inflamed necessity. Again he learned his lesson. If he took her it was a paucity which he was forced to despise. He did not despise himself nor the girl. But he despised the net result in him of the experience. He despised it deeply and bitterly. Then, when he was twenty-three, his mother died and he was left at home with Effie. His mother's death was another blow out of the dark. He could not understand it. He knew it was no good his trying. One had to submit to these unforeseen blows that come unawares and leave a bruise that remains and hurts whenever it is touched. He began to be afraid of all that which was up against him. He had loved his mother. After this Effie and he quarrelled fiercely. They meant a very great deal to each other, but they were both under a strange, unnatural tension. He stayed out of the house as much as possible. He got a special corner for himself at the Red Lion at Cossethay, and became a usual figure by the fire, a fresh, 
fair young fellow with heavy limbs and head held back, mostly silent, though alert and attentive, very hearty in his greeting of everybody he knew, shy of strangers. He teased all the women, who liked him extremely, and he was very attentive to the talk of the men, very respectful. To drink made him quickly flush very red in the face, and brought out the look of self-consciousness and unsureness, almost bewilderment, in his blue eyes. When he came home in this state of tipsy confusion, his sister hated him and abused him, and he went off his head like a mad bull with rage. He had still another turn with a lighter love. One Whitsuntide he went to jaunt with two other young fellows on horseback to Matlock and thence to Bakewell. Matlock was at that time just becoming a famous beauty spot, visited from Manchester and from the Staffordshire towns. In the hotel where the young men took lunch were two girls, and the parties struck up a friendship. The miss who made up to Tom Brangwen, then twenty-four years old, was a handsome, reckless girl, neglected for an afternoon by the man who had brought her out. She saw Brangwen and liked him, as all women did, for his warmth and his generous nature, and for the innate delicacy in him, but she saw he was one who would have to be brought to the scratch. However, she was roused and unsatisfied and made mischievous, so she dared anything. It would be an easy interlude, restoring her pride. She was a handsome girl with a bosom and dark hair and blue eyes, a girl full of easy laughter, flushed from the sun, inclined to wipe her laughing face in a very natural and taking manner. Brangwen was in a state of wonder. He treated her with his chaffing deference, roused but very unsure of himself, afraid to death of being too forward, ashamed lest he might be thought backward, mad with desire, yet restrained by instinctive regard for women from making any definite approach, feeling all the while that his attitude was ridiculous, and flushing deep with confusion. She, however, became hard and daring, as he became confused. It amused her to see him come on. "'When must you get back?' she asked. "'I'm not particular,' he said. There the conversation again broke down. Brangwen's companions were ready to go on. "'Art coming, Tom?' they called. "'Or art for stopping?' "'Aye, I'm coming,' he replied, rising reluctantly, an angry sense of futility and disappointment spreading over him. He met the full, almost taunting look of the girl, and he trembled with unusedness. "'Shall you come and have a look at my mare?' he said to her, with his hearty kindliness that was now shaken with trepidation. "'Oh, I should like to,' she said, rising. And she followed him, his rather sloping shoulders and his cloth riding gaiters, out of the room. The young men got their own horses out of the stable. "'Can you ride?' Brangwen asked her. "'I should like to, if I could. I've never tried,' she said. "'Come, then, and have a try,' he said. And he lifted her, he blushing, she laughing, into the saddle. "'As'll slip off. It's not a lady's saddle,' she cried. "'Hold you tight,' he said, and he led her out of the hotel gate. The girl sat very insecurely, clinging fast. He put a hand on her waist to support her, and he held her closely. He clasped her as in an embrace. He was weak with desire as he strode beside her. The horse walked by the river. "'You want to sit straddle-leg?' he said to her. "'I know I do,' she said. It was the time of very full skirts. She managed to get astride the horse, quite decently, showing an intent concern for covering her pretty leg. 
"'It's a lot's better, this road,' she said, looking down at him. "'Ah, it is,' he said, feeling the marrow melt in his bones from the look in her eyes. "'I don't know why they have that side-saddle business, twisting a woman in two. "'Should us leave you, then? You seem to be fixed up there,' called Branwen's companions from the road. He went red with anger. "'Aye, don't worry,' he called back. "'How long are you stopping?' they asked. "'Not after Christmas,' he said, and the girl gave a tinkling peal of laughter. "'All right. Bye-bye.' called his friends, and they cantered off, leaving him very flushed, trying to be quite normal with the girl. But presently he had gone back to the hotel, and given his horse into the charge of an ostler, and had gone off with the girl into the woods, not quite knowing where he was or what he was doing. His heart thumped, and he thought it the most glorious adventure, and was mad with desire for the girl. Afterwards he glowed with pleasure. By Jove, but that was something like— he stayed the afternoon with the girl, and wanted to stay the night. She, however, told him this was impossible. Her own man would be back by dark, and she must be with him. He, Brangwen, must not let on that there had been anything between them. She gave him an intimate smile, which made him feel confused and gratified. He could not tear himself away, though he had promised not to interfere with the girl. He stayed on at the hotel overnight. He saw the other fellow at the evening meal a small, middle-aged man with iron-grey hair and a curious face, like a monkey's, but interesting, in its way almost beautiful. Brangwen guessed that he was a foreigner. He was in company with another, an Englishman, dry and hard. The four sat at table, two men and two women. Brangwen watched with all his eyes. He saw how the foreigner treated the women with courteous contempt, as if they were pleasing animals. Brangwen's girl had put on a ladylike manner, but her voice betrayed her. She wanted to win back her man. When dessert came on, however, the little foreigner turned round from his table and calmly surveyed the room, like one unoccupied. Brangwen marvelled over the cold, animal intelligence of the face. The brown eyes were round, showing all the brown pupil, like a monkey's, and just calmly looking, perceiving the other person without referring to him at all. They rested on Brangwen, the latter marvelled at the old face turned round on him, looking at him without considering it necessary to know him at all. The eyebrows of the round, perceiving, but unconcerned eyes were rather high up, with slight wrinkles above them, just as a monkey's had. It was an old, ageless face. The man was most amazingly a gentleman all the time, an aristocrat. Brangwen stared, fascinated. The girl was pushing her crumbs about on the cloth, uneasily, flushed and angry. As Brangwen sat motionless in the hall afterwards, too much moved and lost to know what to do, the little stranger came up to him with a beautiful smile and manner, offering a cigarette and saying, "'Will you smoke?' Brangwen never smoked cigarettes, yet he took the one offered, fumbling painfully with thick fingers, blushing to the roots of his hair. Then he looked with his warm blue eyes at the almost sardonic, lidded eyes of the foreigner. The latter sat down beside him, and they began to talk, chiefly of horses. Brangwen loved the other man for his exquisite graciousness, for his tact and reserve, and for his ageless, monkey-like self-surety. They talked of horses, and of Derbyshire, and of farming. The stranger warmed to the young fellow with real warmth, and Brangwen was excited. He was transported at meeting this odd, middle-aged, dry-skinned man personally. The talk was pleasant, but that did not matter so much. It was the gracious manner, the fine contact, that was all. 
They talked a long while together, Brangwen flushing like a girl when the other did not understand his idiom. Then they said good-night and shook hands. Again the foreigner bowed and repeated his good-night. Good-night and bon voyage. Then he turned to the stairs. Brangwen went up to his room and lay staring out at the stars of the summer night, his whole being in a whirl. What was it all? There was a life so different from what he knew it. What was there outside his knowledge? How much? What was this that he had touched? What was he in this new influence? What did everything mean? Where was life, in that which he knew or all outside him? He fell asleep, and in the morning had ridden away before any other visitors were awake. He shrank from seeing any of them again in the morning. His mind was one big excitement. The girl and the foreigner, he knew neither of their names. Yet they had set fire to the homestead of his nature, and he would be burned out of cover. Of the two experiences, perhaps the meeting with the foreigner was the more significant. But the girl, he had not settled about the girl. He did not know. He had to leave it there, as it was. He could not sum up his experiences. The result of these encounters was that he dreamed day and night, absorbedly, of a voluptuous woman, and of the meeting with a small, withered foreigner of ancient breeding. No sooner was his mind free, no sooner had he left his own companions, that he began to imagine an intimacy with fine-textured, subtle-mannered people, such as the foreigner at Matlock, and amidst this subtle intimacy was always the satisfaction of a voluptuous woman. He went about absorbed in the interest and the actuality of this dream. His eyes glowed, he walked with his head up, full of the exquisite pleasure of aristocratic subtlety and grace, tormented with the desire for the girl. Then gradually the glow began to fade, and the cold material of his customary life to show through. He resented it. Was he cheated in his illusion? He balked the bean enclosure of reality, stood stubbornly like a bull at a gate, refusing to re-enter the well-known round of his own life. He drank more than usual to keep up the glow, but it faded more and more for all that. He set his teeth at the commonplace, to which he would not submit. It resolved itself starkly before him, for all that. He wanted to marry, to get settled somehow, to get out of the quandary he found himself in. But how? He felt unable to move his limbs. He had seen a little creature caught in bird-lime, and the sight was a nightmare to him. He began to feel mad with the rage of impotency. He wanted something to get hold of, to pull himself out, but there was nothing. Steadfastly he looked at the young women, to find a one he could marry, but not one of them did he want, and he knew that the idea of a life among such people as the foreigner was ridiculous. Yet he dreamed of it, and stuck to his dreams, and he would not have the reality of Cossethay and Ilkeston. There he sat stubbornly in his corner at the Red Lion, smoking and musing, and occasionally lifting his beer-pot, and saying nothing, for all the world like a gawping farm-labourer, as he said himself. Then a fever of restless anger came upon him. He wanted to go away, right away. He dreamed of foreign parts, but somehow he had no contact with them, and it was a very strong root which held him to the marsh, to his own house and land. Then Effie got married, and he was left in the house with only Tilly, the cross-eyed woman-servant, who had been with them for fifteen years. He felt things coming to a close. 
all the time he had held himself stubbornly resistant to the action of the commonplace unreality which wanted to absorb him but now he had to do something he was by nature temperate being sensitive and emotional his nausea prevented him from drinking too much but in futile anger with the greatest of determination and apparent good humour he began to drink in order to get drunk damn it he said to himself you must have it one road or another you can't hitch your horse to the shadow of a gate-post if you've got legs you've got to rise off your backside some time or other so he rose and went down to ilkeston rather awkwardly took his place among a gang of young bloods stood drinks to the company and discovered he could carry it off quite well he had an idea that everybody in the room was a man after his own heart that everything was glorious everything was perfect when somebody in alarm told him his coat pocket was on fire he could only beam from a red blissful face and say is all right is all right it's a right let it be let it be and he laughed with pleasure and was rather indignant that the others should think it unnatural for his coat pocket to burn it was the happiest and most natural thing in the world what he went home talking to himself and to the moon that was very high and small stumbling at the flashes of moonlight from the puddles at his feet wondering what the hanover then laughing confidently to the moon assuring her this was first class this was in the morning he woke up and thought about it and for the first time in his life knew what it was to feel really acutely irritable in a misery of real bad temper after bawling and snarling at tilly he took himself off for very shame to be alone and looking at the ashen fields and the putty roads he wondered what in the name of hell he could do to get out of this prickly sense of disgust and physical repulsion and he knew that this was the result of his glorious evening and his stomach did not want any more brandy he went doggedly across the fields with his terrier and looked at everything with a jaundiced eye the next evening found him back again in his place at the red lion moderate and decent there he sat and stubbornly waited for what would happen next End of chapter 1, part 1 Read by Tony Foster